Well, we're taking a break from our study in Revelation since it's Christmas time. We want to focus these next couple of weeks on Christmas. As mentioned, next week's the kids play, and then we'll have part two of this lesson the week following that. You know, it, it seems like, I don't know if it feels like this to you, but it was just like two weeks ago we were doing Christmas last year. We were, the ladies were going through all the, we have so many buckets of Christmas stuff. And the ladies spent two or three days, solid days, going through all the stuff in the attic. And you saw the dumpster out there? The, that's almost full of stuff that was in the attic that we haven't used in decades. So, but they, they were able to organize and find stuff they hadn't seen for a while. We found the manger scene that was buried in the attic somewhere. So, thanks to those ladies who did that and the costumes who were getting ready to go, they're excited for it. So, last week, two weeks ago, we prayed for needs. We mentioned that earlier. And a lot of folks were healed in this service. And I found another testimony from a, f- a couple that used to attend here. I'm not sure if you remember, Fred Shoppy, Fred and Linda Shoppy. He's a retired pastor. They sat over there usually. And they, they had a move. He was getting up in age, so they moved and they lived with their kids. And he had Parkinson's. And Jamie was telling me this. She texted me and she said, I'm just going to read the text since it would be easier to do. It says, Linda wanted me to pass along that Fred had been healed of Parkinson's. Back in April, his neurologist noticed something and he had extensive testing done and all of them denied any signs of Parkinson's. His brain was perfectly clear. She said his mind was very quick, especially with scripture. And she wanted me to let you know, since some of you saw the beginning of the disease when he was here. We saw how he, how he was going through that. So God's a God who heals. <laughs> Amen? Praise the Lord. So Christmas. Mark this off my head. If I tie my hands back, I can't talk, so. Now, we're going to look at the, the account of, of Christmas in Luke. Now, you, we've all probably heard the story a thousand times. If you've been in church most of your life, you've heard it a, a thousand times. And I wanted to kind of focus on what does that mean today? Other than, obviously, Jesus, what is what God did in the birth of Jesus, what does that mean for today? So we're going to look at Luke's account. And I'm going to, I like the word account. I don't like the word story because it sounds like it's just a story as opposed to a, a real account that happened. So we're going to look at Jesus' birth as recorded in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read it. We all know, but I'm going to read it anyways. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus had issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, where, because he belonged to the house in line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. 
He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Now, as we mentioned earlier, since our computer decided to, do, to die, there will be no scripture verses on the screen that will make you actually have to look them up in your Bible. Now, as we mentioned before, it's, it's always better to know what was going on in the world at that moment to get the context of what was happening in Luke. Now, at the beginning of the, at the, beginning of the New Testament, between Malachi at the end of the Old Testament and Matthew at the beginning of the New 400 years had elapsed, and during those 400 years, nothing from God. Total silence. Micah's Elijah, uh, prophecy of Elijah returning was the last word that God had given them. And during these 400 years, Israel had fallen away from God, and they were living now by tradition rather than on what God said. And it was during these 400 years that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came into being. They hadn't been around before then, but it was during this time lapse that they came in. They were kind of filling the gap that the prophets had. There was no prophets, so therefore no word of God. So when there's a vacuum in leadership, someone assumes that position, which is what they did. And whether they were called or not to fill it, they filled it. And so now, because of the gap in leadership, because there's no word from God, now you have these two ruling classes that have assumed the role on themselves. And I wrote down here, that's the main reason the church has to always recognize that God and his word is unchanging. Leaders are gonna change, people are gonna change. God's word has to remain the same. It can't change. Regardless of who's up front or who's teaching, God's word is still God's word and it can't be changed. And what was happening was the Pharisees and Sadducees were now beginning to change it. They were twisting it around to a tradition-based thing rather than what God said. In the Old Testament, they gave a series of laws, and what the Pharisees did was they made a bunch of laws around that law. So in other words, if you can't, you can't do anything on the Sabbath. So what they did is they put a whole bunch of things in, in around there so you wouldn't get close to breaking the Sabbath. These were their own man-made traditions and rules, and Jesus talks about them. He says, you know, you follow your old traditions without obeying the word of God. So the tradition had, had crept in, what they'd have always done, 400 years had passed, and all these things that these Pharisees and Sadducees put into place, now that was, that was gospel. That was what they were living by rather than what God's word said. And it's dangerous to put tradition in place when it overpowers God's word. It's okay to have tradition as long as we know that tradition is subservient to God's word. And if a tradition that we have is not a godly one, then we need to get rid of that tradition. Israel, for the most part, had slid into the trap of this tradition and allowed the leaders to continue 
that mistake. In other words, people were following the leaders. That's why God says he's going to judge leaders more harshly because people follow them. And they put these, these traditions in place and they were following these traditions because, quote, the leaders were telling us this, we need to follow them rather than doing their own study and knowing what God's word says. And because they were scattered, they, had, you know, they weren't in Israel anymore. Because they were scattered, they, the synagogues is what came up during that time. There was no longer one temple. They couldn't travel to one temple, so they made all these little synagogues around. And so that's where the synagogues came into in play. And the Romans allowed them to get together and have these synagogues and, and worship as long as it didn't inter interfere with what the government of Rome was doing. In other words, you can do what you want in your own house, but don't let it affect what's going on in the world. Does that sound familiar? You can do whatever you want in church, but don't bring it into the world. That's the way the Romans were. And the Pharisees were glad to do that. Okay? We'll just keep it in our own house. We won't let it affect anybody. We won't draw anybody into it. We don't want to cause any problems. That's peace at any cost, and we've talked about that before. The moment we start trying to please everybody... We can't please anybody. And if we, please, we try to please people, you're not going to please God. James 4, 4 says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That means the world's system, how the world operates. If you operate the same way the world does, the Bible says you're at enmity with God. The Pharisees and Sadducees kept the government off the back of the Jews by trying to please the government. They were trying to do everything the government said and kind of in line with them. All that history to say this, Israel was in a dark spiritual condition. Most of the Jews at that time were apostate as we can see when Jesus came. And it was in the middle of this dark spiritual condition that God chose to send Jesus. He could have waited, he could have done it right after Malachi when things were going okay, but he waited until things were bad to show up. Think of the analogy today. It's pretty bad in the world. And I think every generation has probably said that. But think about, and I'm, I'm not doing this as a political thing, but think about the vaccine as an example. There's places now that you can't buy food Unless you have the vaccine. Different countries, you can't buy food without the vaccine. They're asking you to show your vaccine papers. That's not, not the mark of the beast, but it's preparing us for the mark of the beast. That same thing that's happening now that we thought would never happen is happening in this generation. And so it's in the middle of the dark, darkest point that Jesus shows up, which means any time now Jesus could show up in the rapture. Jews weren't ready. Are we ready? If he shows up today, man, are we ready? And I would venture to say that in most of the world that mainline Christianity is becoming more and more like the Jews of the New Testament, kind of apostate away from God. Having a form of godliness, well, let me read it, 2 Timothy 3. It says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, Boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. There's a lot of people meeting in churches 
over the world today. Some of them are just meeting because it's something to do. Not recognizing that there's no Holy Spirit in the church. They have a form of godliness. They seem to be doing everything right, but there's no power in them. And I think that we are fast approaching that particular area. So it's a dark spiritual time and Luke writes his account. Now we know that Luke was a doctor and what he did is he took a lot of time to verify the account before he actually wrote it down. Luke chapter one, verse three says, therefore since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of things you have been taught. I don't know, you probably know I've been a big proponent of knowing why you believe what you believe, being able to explain it to somebody else. Christianity is something that you can research and you can come to your own conclusions. There are evidences to back up what you believe. Now, it's ultimately going to be a faith thing because you don't know everything. But there are evidences to back up to why you are a Christian, things that are true in the world. There are things you can research, there are studies you can do to be confident in your own mind that it's true. And it's what Luke did before he even wrote the account. He studied it, made sure it was true, and then he wrote it down. And once you become convinced from your own study and life experiences, you should be confident to share that with other people. I think the most, the most fearful thing we have when talking to someone else about Christ is they may ask you something that you don't know. And it's entirely possible. And that's okay. You can ask, if someone asks you a question that you don't know, you say, well, you know what? I'll check on that and let you know. I'm not sure. It's okay to be truthful. But it's also okay to have an answer. The Bible says, be sure you have an answer to those who ask you for the hope you have within. Have some kind of a response when someone talks to you about Christ. And you do that by study and what God does in your life personally. Luke was Theophilus' Theophilus's teacher. He was mentoring and discipling him. And in that case, he wrote this. And we're going to start back Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Now we, we read that and we don't realize what magnitude of God moving was happening here. God was moving sovereignly through all the nations to bring people to where they needed to be. There were people everywhere. And for Joseph to be where he needed to be, God was moving nations. God was moving an entire nation around to get them where they needed to be. Look at what God was doing to fulfill one promise. He was moving a nation of people in order to get things and people exactly where he wanted them to be. How many of us are hanging on to a promise of God? God can move nations to bring that promise to fulfillment for you. It was over 400 years since God had even mentioned anything but now he's just moving an entire nation around to bring to fulfillment his promise. How many of you have been waiting years for God to fulfill a promise? Years. 
Two things about that. The first thing, it's going to happen. It will take longer than you like, longer than you think, longer than you expect it, but God's promise will happen. The Bible says that God's promises are what? Yes and amen. In other words, so be it. And the second thing, God will do seemingly impossible things to bring it about. Things that you just, you, you can't imagine that God can actually do or God would do. But he does impossible things to bring about that promise. It may look in the natural, that's never going to happen. You look at every possibility from your own mind and you think well, there's, there's absolutely no way that's going to happen. But God can move nations to bring about one promise. I think God can change situations in your life that are beyond your ability to control. And that's the thing about Christmas. God will do what he says he's going to do. Whatever promise God has made you in his word, whatever you read in his word that kind of speaks to your spirit, the Bible says God is going to do it. It won't happen when you want it to happen, but it's going to happen. It took 400 years. Now, we don't have 400 years, but it's going to happen in your lifetime. What are you waiting on for God to do? Healing? How many of you are praying for family, friends? The Bible says that Jesus' brothers didn't believe him until he was gone. God will save them. You may not be here to see it, but God is going to save them. The Bible says that God wants no one to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance, right? Everyone. Not some, not most, everyone. Now, obviously, it's people's choice, but God wants everyone to be saved. The Bible says God does things that are impossible for us to understand how he does it. So I'm believing that they're going to get saved. Luke continues in verse 5. When he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, Luke's account prior to this tells us how all this started. If the only part we knew was Luke chapter 2, we kind of miss out getting to this point. How God was working his plan using ordinary people. Go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It says, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. So here you have a young girl, most think she's just a teenager, just doing her thing, living her life, doing her best to please God as she knows how, Nobody special, did nothing extraordinary. Nobody probably knew who this girl was. None of the Pharisees or Sadducees knew who this person was. A simple teenager that God found faithful. And not only faithful, God says highly favored. You may think that in the grand scheme of things, you're not going to accomplish anything in your life or anything of significance for God. Maybe nobody knows who you are. Maybe you haven't done anything notable 
for anything. But it's people like you that God picks to do great things. Our job is just to live faithfully. Be faithful and God will work in your life. You don't have to be anybody. All you have to be is somebody who is faithful to God. And God may choose you to do something that is extraordinary. And no one may know about you even after that. Except God does. Who was Billy Graham's Sunday school teacher? That's how he got saved. Who was Spurgeon's preacher? Don't know. Right now, the ladies are downstairs getting the kids ready for the musical, but they're also, they teach them while they're down there. And our prayer for the kids is that it be, that it matter eternally what they receive here. And you never know what these kids are going to do when they get older. The first class I taught, seventh and eighth graders, they're all now 30-something, 40, and half of them are in ministry somewhere. Who'd have thought it? God knew it. You never know what you're going to do and whose life you're going to affect for great things. It doesn't matter who you are. God can use you if you're faithful. Verse 38, Mary answered, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Because this girl was a nobody in man's eyes, she's simply living out her life, doing her thing. God gave her a tremendous blessing. You may be just doing, living your own life, being faithful to God, and no one knows. God may call you to do something great. You don't have to be famous, just faithful. But you also was ready to do it. I'm sure when God said that, I'm sure she's thinking, you know what? It's not going to be easy. Even not knowing what was to come, she said yes. You ever answer God's call? God says, start walking. Where am I going? I'll tell you when you get there, like Abraham. When God calls you to do something, you don't know where you're going to go when you start doing it. You only find that out when you get there. She was faithful to say, yes, whatever you want, Lord. I don't even know what it is, but if you say it, I'm going to do it. God may choose you to, do, to, avine, to accomplish divine purposes in a special way that you don't know until you actually get there. When I first started teaching Sunday school, I had no idea I'd be here. No idea I'd be in ministry at all. Just, just teaching a Sunday school class. But God, draw me here. Doing what God wants you to do, if you're doing it, God will call you to something greater and continue to call you to something greater. And sometimes when God calls you, how many know that road isn't always the easiest road? (laughs) Because sometimes God's road poses hardship and trouble. When When Peter walked on the water, the disciples were in a boat in the middle of the lake, storm, right? They were there because Jesus told them to go out. He said, get in the boat, go out. They were in the middle of God's will, and the storm came up. It wasn't like they were doing something outside of God's will, and the storm came up. 
They were doing exactly what God said, and a storm came up. You can be doing exactly what God says to do and still face obstacles and hardship. But if you persevere, God will move nations through you and because of you. So our last verse finds her ready to give birth, traveling a great distance because God was moving nations of people around. Now I'm sure she wasn't really happy about having to travel that far on a donkey. Worried about the baby, worried about herself. But the truth was that God was going before her, preparing every step of the way. The Bible says that, you know, your path is lit. God's word lights your path, right? It doesn't light the whole path. It lights where you are to the next step and the next step. Sometimes if we saw where God was taking us the whole path, we wouldn't do it. <laughs> I don't want to face that down there. No, God says, let's start here, and I'll, I'll worry about that when you get down there. Not knowing, not knowing or what may happen or even worrying about what is coming, but the truth is God is also preparing every step of our journey as well. Deuteronomy 31.8 says, Don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will neither fail you nor forsake you. Psalm 125.2, Just as the mountains surround and protect Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds and protects his people both now and forever. Lest we think that's just a promise for the Jewish people. Luke 2.8.12 goes on and says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes lying in a manger. So for the first time in over 400 years, with the exception of Mary and Zechariah, an angel appeared, anything from God, over 400 years. And the first thing they said was what? Don't be afraid. Now, I'm a shepherd. I'm in the middle of the field at night. An angel shows up. Probably the, that's probably what I want to hear first. Because I'm thinking to myself, okay, what did I do wrong? Why are you here? And you're an angel. So I'm thinking these, probably, these guys are probably a little bit frightened. But it's also a sign of what God wants each one of us to do. God's a God of peace. Don't be afraid when he shows up in your life. Don't be afraid when God is calling you to do something. It may sound ominous. It may sound like you're not going to be able to do it. But the Bible says he doesn't want you to have any fear. Don't fear what God is calling you to do. How's he going to keep you from fearing? The good news. What's the good news? Well, it wasn't a soldier. It wasn't an Old Testament judge. It wasn't a great reformer. It was a savior. In other words, don't be afraid now. And don't be afraid God, going forward because God is sending a savior for you for now and forever. It's a message to the Jewish people. At that moment, it was a message of peace to a nation who was always involved in war. Now the word peace we know is shalom and it means well-being 
or prosperity, security, soundness, or completeness. And it has more to do with an internal character and feeling rather than outward experiences. In other words, when he says, don't be afraid, don't be, have peace, he wants you to be prosperous in your spirit. Be secure in your spirit. Be complete in your spirit. Regardless of what's going on around you, have that in your heart. He goes on in verse 13 and says, Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on, peace, on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. The angel praised God at creation, Genesis. The angels are now praising him for this creation. And what was the reason for that? What was God's purpose in all of it? To glorify God. To bring glory to God. When Jesus was born, God is glorified. When people come to Christ, God is glorified. When we continue on and we don't see what things that are happening, but we trust that God's working anyways, God is glorified. And we say like Mary did to God's call, he is glorified. When you say yes to what God is calling you to do, in spite of what may happen along the way, God is still glorified. Why? Because he is using you and me to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in the world. How many know that God doesn't need us? God wants to use us, and we're blessed if he does, but if we don't, he can use somebody else. What's the quote? If God can use a donkey to speak a word, he can use us, right? The blessing comes from knowing that you're cooperating with God to accomplish something that's great. Mary had made this journey with just Joseph, and it's been nine months and nothing. Okay, God, I'm about ready to have this baby here. You showed up nine months ago, said I'm going to be pregnant. I haven't seen anything yet, and knew, nobody other than Elizabeth really knew what was happening. Nothing in the society around them was changing in preparation for Jesus. Now, when Christmas comes, we, we redecorate, we do all this stuff, we prepare for Christmas. Right? We get in the mood and all that kind of stuff. Your house is decorated. You would think that at that moment, since the world was going to get a Savior, the world would begin to change. Oh, man, we better get ready for a Savior. We better get, better get ready. better shape it up. You know, nothing. Nothing changed. Nothing in the world had changed for anybody before Jesus came. So I'm wondering what Mary's feeling at this time. Why is all this worth it? Nothing's changing. Everything was going on the way it has before I got pregnant. Why? What's happening? Look around the world. Nothing in our society is really changing either, except for the worse. If we think things are going to get better before the rapture, ain't going to happen. Jesus says what? When you're least expecting it I'm going to come and we mentioned and we look at the things in the world and we say well this is happening so God must be coming soon well that might be true but the Bible says when you least expect it when the world says peace peace it's going to come so when all this turmoil dies down and everybody gets back to normal and we're not expecting it that's when it's going to happen 
when, when the first Gulf War happened, churches were packed, packed. Second Gulf War, packed. 9-11, packed. Three months after each of those things, not so packed. Oh, my God, I need you now, I need you now. Okay, things are good. Thanks, God, I'll, I'll see you. What's well, at that time, when everything gets back to normal, it's been 20 years since 9-11, which I can't believe, and we kind of forget it. That's when Jesus says he's going to come. You ever find yourself in what you thought was God's plan, but it didn't seem like anything was happening according to that plan? What was the prophecy given here, what, 20 years ago? Will be a lighthouse? Okay, Lord, it's been 20 years. God says, well, yeah, it's been 20 years. Calm down. It's going to happen. God is already calling other people to Jesus without Mary even knowing about it. Verse 15, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Where Mary's at, nothing's happening. But the shepherds are at, God's moving. We may not see anything happening in our sphere, but you don't know what God's doing over there to bring them to here. God is working in the background with the shepherds, drawing them to Jesus. We've been having prayer on Thursday nights, which I think is this Thursday, by the way. We may not see anything happening here, but the Bible says God responds to prayer. Prayer works. So while we're praying, God's working in the background for the people we're praying for that we don't even see it's happening. And like the shepherds, Mary had no idea where the shepherds were. They, she didn't know they were coming, but they came. I believe that God's going to continue to bring people in as we pray for them. God's going to work in the background. Mary is traveling on a donkey while nine months pregnant, not seeing anything, having to give birth in a food trough, and that was accomplishing God's will. Yeah. Look at the result of everyone doing what Mary, what God had asked. God's working different people. Mary said yes. Joseph stayed with Mary. They made the journey. They stayed in a barn. Shepherds came. None of them knew what the other were doing. But God was working all these together to fulfill a promise. And the promise was people were being drawn to Christ. You may work in a job that you don't like, but you feel God gave it to you. Maybe you work in kids' ministry. Maybe you work with youth. Maybe you're studying to preach. All these things require you to be faithful. And God will bring you to where you need to be. And God will use all your experience up to that point to get you where you need to be. I graduated college with an accounting degree, so I was an accountant for a while. This was before computers, so everything was on paper. And I hadn't done accounting in 20 years. Then we moved to Florida, and I was working with my brother's company. I had to go back into accounting again. Accounting, I had to learn all the accounting stuff again, and 
the computer version of accounting, and I learned all that. I'm thinking, why, why am I doing this? Why am I in Florida doing this accounting stuff instead of preaching? Well, when I came back, and we came back here, guess what we had to do? We had to get accounting going. Everything was on paper. So we got together, we did the computer thing, we got a program going, and all the stuff I learned in Florida, I'm now using here. God was, I had no idea what God was doing, but he was doing it to prepare us for here. Simply being faithful. God will use you, and whatever talents and abilities you have, and God teaches you, God will enable you to use those for his glory. And ultimately, that will draw people to Christ. All these people married Joseph, the shepherds, all the people were doing what God told them to do. And ultimately, through their obedience and their faithfulness, Jesus was born, and people now have a relationship with Christ. It's no different than today. Jesus has already been born, but people still need to know Christ. And our job as believers is to draw people to Christ, to point them to Christ. And that involves doing things God calls us to do because God works through people to bring about what he wants to accomplish. Would you stand as we close this morning? We get to celebrate Christmas because of a handful of faithful people 2,000 years ago. Imagine what God can do through us if we're faithful. And should the Lord tarry, you know, it could be another 2,000 years before he comes back. And it could be two days before he comes back. That just means we need to be faithful in doing what we're going to do, when we're going to do it, and then trust God for whatever those results are going to be. Because ultimately, what happens in the end is up to God. Our job is just to be faithful like Mary and Joseph and the shepherds were. Would you close your head? Close your head. Yeah, don't close your head. Don't close your mind. Close your eyes. Open your mind. That's it. We celebrate Christmas because hopefully we know the reason for the season. We celebrate it because we love Jesus. And we give gifts because God gave us the gift of Jesus. As long as we keep that focus, we're good. But the minute we lose that focus and focus on the gifts rather than the reason for the gifts, then we could be in trouble. Christmas season is a time where people want to be in church because it's a Christmas thing. But the whole reason for church is to lead people to Jesus. It's not a bless me club. It's not a a club we just come in for ourselves. We come in because we need Jesus in our life. And we come in because we need to grow in our faith. And we come in because we want other people to come in with us. Because when all is said and done and we're gone from this world, the only thing that matters is who we bring with us. If you're here this morning, you've never really committed your life to Christ. You may may have been in church all your life. But you've never really experienced what the Bible calls a born-again experience. A moment in your life where you realize that you and I are sinners. 
that there's nothing in our life that merits us any favor with God. And the Bible says the wages of those sins that we commit is death. So we are rightfully headed away from God, headed toward hell. But the Bible says that the birth of Jesus and the death and the resurrection of Jesus was the payment for the sins that we commit. And the Bible says, if you believe that and you accept that, that means you can get into heaven. If I have a gift that's wrapped up here and I say this gift is for you, it's got your name on it, it's your gift, come and take it. You can look at that gift and you can believe that gift is there and yep, I believe that's there, it's for me, but you don't come up and take it. This gift does you no good. You may believe that Jesus existed, you may believe that Jesus was a good man or whatever, but until you accept his sacrifice as payment for your sin, that gift does you no good. And when your time here is done, you're not going to have a relationship with God. All that to say this, if you're here this morning, you've never made that commitment, but you want to be assured. You want to know that you have that relationship with Christ and you want to know that God is on your side and you want to know that when your life is over, you'll be in heaven with him. This is the day for you. If that's you and you want that assurance, I want you to raise your hand right now. I'll pray with you. All right, I assume that we are all followers of Christ whose sins have been forgiven. So, Father, we do thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the faithful people that allow Jesus to be born. And we thank you for the gift that you've given us, eternal life. We know that you're with us. The Bible says you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us. The Bible says you're our healer, our provider, and all the things your word promises, and we thank you for that. But most of all, Lord, we thank you that we have guaranteed eternity with you so that when this life is over, whenever that might be, the Bible says when we close our eyes here, we open them with Jesus, and for that, we are grateful. I pray your blessings upon each person here this morning. Allow them to really experience the real meaning of Christmas, the love and the joy and the peace that comes from knowing Christ, regardless of what may be going on around us. We still can have that joy and peace. Fill them with that Holy Spirit that gives them that, the fruit of that Spirit. Lord, I commit them to you. Keep us safe. Bring us back again on Wednesday. And next Sunday, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. See you Wednesday night. And next Sunday for the kids program. I'm excited.